Right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, well, first of all, I got to say this is uh, something uh, different for me. Uh, I've been teaching uh, Bible study in Sunday school for many years. This is the first time I've ever done a, a live stream. Uh, but one thing I can tell you, whether you're reading God's Word directly from the Bible, uh, whether you're lit, sitting in a uh, service on Sunday morning, listening to it from the pulpit, or whether uh, you're listening on your computer through a podcast or a, uh, a live stream, God's Word is effective. Uh, it is sharp, it is powerful, and it never uh, returns uh, void. So I hope you'll join me this morning. If you're listening and you got your Bible, you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10. Uh, we, this will be our third week. Uh, in this passage where the title of our lesson is A Believer's Privileges, and this is part 3. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's read that. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture, just seven verses. Like I said, we're, this is our third week in here. Uh, my guess is we'll be in this passage between five and six weeks. It's just so rich. Um, I was telling last week, if you listen to the podcast, you know, the Word of God is meant to be studied. It's meant to be dug into. It's meant to be meditated upon. It's meant to be mined. And we, we want to take as much time in here as we, as we need to Uh, to find out what the Word of God tells us. Now, two weeks ago, we started with the first believer's privileges, and that was union. Um, In verses 4 and 5, let me read that again. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone. And then in verse 5, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. You see, that's Peter's way of saying that when we come to Christ, we become like him. It, It isn't just that we worship him. Uh, it isn't just that we obey Him or honor Him or bow down to Him or pray to Him. All those things are, are true and all those things are, are great. But what sets Christianity apart is that we are united to Him. His life is in us. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. What a privilege that Jesus Christ, His Spirit, lives inside of us. Now, last week, we looked at the second believer's privilege, which is access. First uh, Peter 2.5, he says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And then he stops and says this, To be a holy priesthood. We looked last week, and if you want to get caught up, you can go back. This is posted on the podcast. We found that priests in the Old Testament 
were chosen by God, they were cleansed from sin, they were clothed for service, and they were anointed for service. You see, priests in the Old Testament could do what nobody else could do. They could go places that nobody else could go. They could perform acts that nobody else could perform. And why was that? Because they had special authority. They had special privileges. They had special rights. And Peter is telling us that those same things have been granted to believers in the new covenant. That is who you are. See, if you are a believer, if you are a priest of God, you've been chosen. That's Ephesians 1. You've been cleansed. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you've been anointed for spiritual service by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You and I as believers have direct access to the living God. I mean, what a privilege. Just think about that. What a privilege that is. Now, I was going to move on, but there was just still some more to say about this this privilege of access. So we're going to continue on uh, with that today. Now, last week we looked at the nature of our priesthood. Today we want to look at what is the function. If, if, if Peter says you are a holy priesthood, well, what, does that, what does that mean? What are we supposed to do now that we are priests of the living God? Well, Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 2.5. He says you are called to be a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think for a moment about priests in the Old Testament. What was their primary function? Well, their primary function was to offer sacrifices to God. They were the ones who brought the lambs and the goats and the bulls and the animals and offered them to God as sacrifices. They were the ones who brought the incense and and put it in their censer and burned it and offered that as a sacrifice to God. At the same time, I want you to keep in mind these sacrifices that they offered had to be acceptable to God. You couldn't just offer any old animal. You couldn't just burn any old incense. Leviticus 22 says this, uh, verses 19 to 20, If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. In Exodus 30, it talks about the incense that the Lord wanted to be offered. And he said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacte and onica and galbanum and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. And you shall make an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. So when these priests offered sacrifices in the Old Testament, it couldn't just be any animal. It had to be the best. It had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish. When you offered incense, it had to be the exact compound, the exact mixture that God had dictated. So all these sacrifices and all this Old Testament system had to be conducted in a way not to violate God's commands. In fact, just as an example... That's what killed two of the sons of Aaron because they did not offer a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. You can find that story in Leviticus 10. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. And they died. Now, the best we can tell is they just said, you know what? 
it, it doesn't really matter what incense. Let's, let's just use any old compound. And they put incense in there that was not specifically what God had said, and God killed them. See, these sacrifices, you just didn't offer any old animal or any old incense. You offered exactly what God had prescribed. Now, here's the thing. Have you ever wondered what happened to that old system? Have you ever wondered what happened to the temple, what happened to, to the priesthood, what happened to the sacrifices? Well, in a nutshell, this is what happened. Jesus came. You see, when Jesus came and died, the need for these physical temple sacrifices came to an end. Hebrews 7.27 says this, He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. You see, the coming of Christ means the replacement of Old Testament shadows with New Testament reality. All of those things in the Old Testament, the temple, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the feast, the dietary laws, those were just shadows. Those were just copies. They were all pointing to a coming reality. Well, let me tell you, the reality is Jesus Christ. The reality is His work as our high priest, His work as our sacrifice. Jesus Himself fulfills and replaces the shadows and the copies of the Old Testament system. Now, that's all well and good, but in and of itself, that would not necessarily abolish the Old Testament system. You see, many of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. They would have gladly just went on offering animals and burning incense and doing all those, those things. So what happened? Well, I want to read you a scripture from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the Old Covenant. And he says this, in quoting Jeremiah 31, he says this, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, if you would have been around in the first century and you, somebody had read that letter to you and you had heard those words as a Jew, you would have found that to be a very threatening prediction. It wouldn't have been threatening to Gentiles, but to the Jews, you've got to understand, the temple was the center of their culture. The temple was the center of their entire way of life. Everything they did was built around this first covenant. And here is this writer of Hebrews saying it's getting ready to vanish away. Now, in fact, it did vanish away in 70 A.D., by the way, just as a side note, this tells us that Hebrews had to be written before 70 A.D. because he's talking about it in the future tense. It's getting ready to vanish away, so which means it hasn't gone away yet, or else he would have talked about it in the past tense. Now, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the importance of what happened in 70 A.D., or, or at least the events that happened in Israel and Jerusalem during that year. It, it was an event that happened that year that for Jews and, and, and Christians for the next 2,000 years would literally define their faith. Now, I want you to understand something today. God is always at work. We know that, right? Even when, even when we don't see it, even when we uh, are not privy to all the, His comings and goings and doings, we know that God is, is working. And I want to show you the way that God was working two ways. Number one, I want to show you biblically. And then number two, I want to show you historically. 
So let's start with, with biblically. Now, let's, let's, if we could, let's go back and put ourselves back around, let's say, the 50s, the 60s of A.D. Jesus has already come, he's lived, he's died, he's been resurrected, he's gone back to heaven, uh, the church has broken out, uh, the day of Pentecost has all happened, and here we are around the mid-60s. Now, God has been at work for the last 2,000 years in the nation of Israel. Uh, since his covenant with Abraham, he's been calling and preserving and blessing and judging and forgiving his people, uh, Israel. And he has commanded this elaborate system. If you go back and read the Old Testament, there's this elaborate system of sacrifices and rituals and feasts and dietary laws. Now, why did he do all that? Well, he did it for three reasons. Number one, he did it to set Israel apart. He didn't want Israel to be like the Canaanites. He didn't want Israel to be like these other nations. He wanted them to be holy. He wanted them to be set apart. That's number one. Number two, he did it to make himself known to them. As I said earlier, you didn't just offer any old animal. You didn't just go out in the herd and say, well, I'll just grab this one. Uh, he, he's the runt or he's, he's got a limp. No, you offered your best. God was holy. He said, I will be sanctified. He wanted people to see that. But to number three, he always wanted to point them to a future fulfillment. He wanted them to see that the, the blood of, 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 of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs, they don't take away sins. There's coming a Redeemer. There's coming a Messiah. There's coming one who is going to set it all right. He wanted them to see that. And that system, as we've said already, was copies and shadows pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, here we are in the mid-60s A.D., and Christians are claiming that the Messiah, the fulfillment, the Redeemer, has come in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you've got to understand, the vast majority of Israel rejected Jesus. Yet as the years went by, they saw more and more of their Jewish brothers and sisters being converted to this new religious movement called Christianity. And so the Jews were very concerned. There was a lot of angst. that they, they, they understood that this religious movement called Christianity was literally a threat to their very way of life. In Acts chapter 6, there's a story of Stephen being stoned, and we're all familiar with that story. And uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, it says this, They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place, talking about the temple, and he speaks against the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses hands down to us. Now, right there, you have the meaning of Christianity for the Jewish leaders. They understood that if this temple goes, our whole way of life is going gonna, is gonna to vanish. They could sense it, and they had every reason to be afraid. You see, they really believed that Christianity threatened the existence of the temple. And as I said, if the temple goes, the whole system goes with it. And the issue was so sharp that they killed Stephen over it. Now, as I said, they had every reason to be afraid because Jesus himself had prophesied the destruction of the temple. Luke 21, 5 through 6 tells the story. The disciples and Jesus are walking out of the temple compound one day and they were talking about the temple and how great it was, how glorious it was, how majestic it was. And Jesus said this, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
So, so Jesus had said it was going to happen. Men like Stephen and Peter, uh, I'm saying, they're saying, Jesus said this is going to happen. The Jews are hearing this. And so you can see all this animosity is growing between the Jews and the early Christians. The, the, what, they understood if this temple goes, everything goes, and that could not be allowed to happen. So this is all happening biblically. Now let's step outside the Bible for a second, and let's look at what was happening historically. Now during this time, the atmosphere in the land of Israel was tense with rebellion against Rome. The, the Jewish people literally hated. They hated the fact that they were the under the thumb of a godless nation. They wanted out from under the thumb of Rome more than anything in the world. And so oh, during this time frame, different men would rise up and they would rebel. And we've got at least three of these documented in the Bible. Acts chapter 5 says this, Some time ago, Thutis appeared, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Uh, when Paul came along, even one of the Roman commanders thought that Paul had been one of those leaders. Acts 21, this commander says to Paul, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? So we can see during this time frame, there's this dissension is just fomenting in the land of Israel. And these different men rise up and, and they get sometimes 400 followers, sometimes 4,000 followers. But event, all these men are eventually killed and their following is dispersed. Now, around this time, 64 AD, a man by the name of Gessius Florus was appointed the procurator or the governor of Judea. Now, this man is going to bring it all to a head. He was appointed, by the way, by Nero himself. And he was known for his greed, and he was known for his injustice. And several things happened in the late 60 AD, uh, in that decade, that brought things to a head. One time, there was Jews and Greeks lived in Jerusalem together. And one time, and we don't know why this happened, but one of the Greek leaders actually went to a synagogue and sacrificed some birds on the steps of the synagogue, which was, would have rendered the whole building ritually unclean. So in response, the Jews sent a group of men to Florus, the, the governor, for justice. And in that day, you had to actually pay, uh, I think they paid like eight talents for him to hear their case. So he took their money, and then he turned around and had the Jews arrested and put in, in prison. So not only was he greedy, he practiced in injustice. Another time, he went into the, the treasury of the temple and he transferred 17 talents out of the temple over to uh, the Roman treasury or, or Nero. And, and the city was just in an uproar about this. In fact, there's a story told that uh, many of the Jews began to walk around with baskets taking up offerings for Florus to mock him uh, as, being, as being poor. Now, Florus reacted this, to this unrest by sending soldiers into the city to arrest a number of the Jewish leaders, and he did. He arrested them, he whipped them, and he crucified them and killed them. 
And, and, and this was illegal because many of these Jewish leaders were Roman citizens, and you weren't supposed to, to do that. So the people just get enraged. The city, you can just, it's just boiling. This is around 65, 66 A.D., somewhere in there. They're just, I mean, there's a lot of unrest going on. And that day, the Jews would actually offer sacrifices for the welfare of the emperor. And Eleazar, a guy who was the captain of the, of the temple, he convinced the priest, stop doing that. We're not going to do that anymore. And that was a very ominous sign. And eventually, the, the, the match was lit. A group of Jewish rebels stormed the fortress of Antonius in the city, and they killed all the Roman soldiers that were there. And after this, there was no turning back. The Rome, Romans would have to respond, and respond they did. This resulted in what became known as the Great Revolt, or the Jewish War, which occurred from 66 to 70 A.D. The first thing Rome did is they sent a legion of soldiers. Now, a legion is about 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And so they sent, imagine them sending about 5,000 soldiers to Israel and say, go put down that rebellion. Those 5,000 soldiers were ambushed at a place called Beth Horon and wiped out. And this, this just completely shocked the, the Roman leadership. So they went back and they, they, they tapped a guy by the name of Vespasian. He was a Roman general. And he took all the soldiers, he took several legions to Israel and he made war against the Jews. And, and this, by 67 AD, he had pretty much put down all the rebellion. He had taken all of Israel except the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem had these huge walls at the time. I mean, it was impenetrable. And all the Jews had gone inside the city over a million and locked the doors. And at the time, Nero had died, and Vespasian had to go back to Rome to become emperor, so he left his son Titus to finish things out. And he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for five months. No food in, no, they, they shut off the wells of water that ran under the city. Uh, they just said, okay, you want to stay in there? We'll wait you out. And after five months, they finally broke through, and they burned the temple, and they burned the city to the ground in 70 A.D., now, it turns out that we know a lot about this because there was a guy by the name of Josephus there. Now, Josephus was a historian, and he was a Jew, and he was actually working as a negotiator or a translator between the Romans and the, and the, and the Jewish people in the city. And he wrote an account of what happened. And by the way, I've got this book at, at my house. You can go uh, Google it. You can buy the book. You can still read today. Uh, Josephus' account of what happened. I want to read you a few passages from his book, The War of the Jews. He said this, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, Titus gave orders to demolish the entire city and the temple. But he should leave as many of the towers standing as they were of great eminence. But for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was left nothing to make those that came there believe it had ever been inhabited. He literally told them to dig under the foundation of the wall and tear the whole thing down. He said, goes on, And truly, the very view itself was a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens 
were now become desolate country in every way, and the trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city, and now saw it as a desert, they could only lament and mourn at so great a change. For the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. Nor had anyone who had known the place before had come on to it now would have known it again. Josephus documents that in that siege, 1,100,000 Jews were killed. Over a million Jews in the city of Jerusalem were, were basically wiped out. Over 100,000 that were left were taken captive and enslaved back in Rome. Josephus goes on and says this, The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who asked for mercy, were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. Now, throughout the country, there was a few Jewish groups that, that held on for a while, but they all eventually collapsed. One of the most famous was a group of Jewish rebels at the fortress of Masada who held out for a couple of more years but eventually committed mass suicide rather than be taken captive. If you go to Rome today, you can still see frescoes or, or panels from that time period. Uh, one of them shows Roman soldiers carrying a menorah out of the temple. They, they're still celebrating that victory in the Jewish war uh, in 70 A.D. You see, 70 A.D. was the end of ancient Judaism. The priesthood, the, you, the, the sacrifices ended because there's no temple. And if there's no temple, there's no altar. And if there's no altar, there, you can't offer sacrifices. The priesthood ended. You see, the priesthood, as we saw last week, had to come from the lineage of Aaron. Well, when, the, when they burned the temple and they burned the city, they burned all the records. So now they can't restore the priesthood because they don't know who is from the exact lineage of, of Aaron. So the priesthood is gone, the temple is gone, the sacrifices are gone. The whole life that's centered around this temple uh, was, was over, and it's never been restored to our day. If you go to Tallahassee and you go to a synagogue, or you go to New York and go to a synagogue, or you go to Tel Aviv, there's Jews there, and they're practicing a Judaism, but it's nothing like the Judaism of the Bible. They can't sacrifice anymore. They have no priesthood. They have no temple. That all ended in 70 A.D. Now, what is the meaning? Why, why do I go to the trouble to tell you all about this thing that happened some almost 2,000 uh, years ago? What's the meaning of that event? Well, first of all, it is a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus himself predicted... I want you to listen to this. Jesus himself predicted exactly what would come to pass. Luke 19, 33 to 34. Jesus is speaking over Jerusalem and he said this, The days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you. See, that's what they did. That's how they ended up... They actually built an earthen bank to scale the walls. He says, Your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another. And then he tells why. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Because you did not recognize the Messiah. You did not recognize the reality. 
You see the destruction of the temple along with the destruction of the priesthood and the destruction of the sacrificial system was God's own testimony that the coming of Jesus Christ was in fact what the writer of Hebrews says it was, the, the replacement of shadows with the reality of Jesus Christ. Athanasius, who was one of the church fathers in 373 AD, he put it like this, It is a sign and an important proof of the coming of the word of God that Jerusalem and the temple no longer stands. For when the truth is here, why do you need shadows anymore? And he's exactly right. Now, why is 70 AD important to us? You see, God took it upon himself to make that old covenant obsolete. And in doing so, he gave a real, living, actual, historical testimony to who Jesus Christ really is. You see, when the temple's burned and the, the altar is destroyed and the, and the priesthood is all killed and the records are burned up and all of that comes to an end, God is saying in His own power, in His own providence, Christ was the goal of it all. Those copies, you don't need them anymore. The real thing has come on the scene in Jesus Christ. So every time we hear about Israel, Every time we read about Israel, every time we, we turn on the news and watch something about Israel, we need to remember 70 A.D. Not just remember what God did, not just the destruction of, of an ancient religious system, but remember why it was destroyed, because the reality has come on the scene. Jesus Christ is here. You don't need copies and shadows of those things anymore. Now... You may be thinking right now, well, are we ever going to get back to the passage? Well, absolutely we are, so let's come back. The physical sacrifices are over. There's no animals, there's no incense to be burned, anything like that. But yet, God still has a priesthood, and God still asks for sacrifices. Again, no more animals, no, nothing physical. The only sacrifices that offered today, uh, Peter says, are spiritual sacrifices. As priests of the living God, you and I have this incredible privilege of being able to offer those sacrifices to God. Now listen, before we move on, though, I need you to mark something down. With this privilege comes an incredible responsibility. You see, in the Old Testament, not just any sacrifice would do. Remember I said that earlier. Not just any animal, not just any incense. It had to be acceptable to God. And the same thing is true today. Our sacrifices, even though they're spiritual, have to be acceptable to God. Now, how are they acceptable? Well, Peter told us in verse 5. He says, You are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer? I'm going to give you three. Number one, our bodies. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service. See, that means, I think, that everything you do with your body is to be done as an act of worship to God. It's not so important what you do. It's the attitude of how you do it. If you go back and read... Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you read that in context, he's talking about two people. And one person chooses to eat meat, 
and the other person chooses not to. And Paul said, that's up to you. If you want to eat meat, eat it. If you don't want to eat meat, don't eat it. That's not the point. The point is, whatever you do, do it for the glory of of God. So it doesn't matter, to be quite honest with you, if we're um, eating or drinking or hammering a nail or mending a shirt or, 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 or reading a book. Whatever we're doing, are we doing it in the power of Jesus Christ? Are we doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ? Are we doing it with the right attitude? Are we doing it in the right way? Whatever we do with our body, do it to the glory of God. And, and the Bible says that is a spiritual sacrifice. The second thing that we are to offer is our praise. Our praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His um, name. You know, oftentimes in church, we'll say, well, let's, let's praise the Lord. And that no- normally means, well, we're going to clap a little bit and say, praise the Lord. But is that really what that means? When, when, when the, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to praise, is that what he's talking about? Just clap and, and say, praise the Lord? If you go back to the Old Testament, the praise was a recitation of the glorious nature and works of God. Let me say that again. Praise was always a recitation of the glorious nature and the works of God. And if you say, well, I don't even know what that means, and I don't know how to do it, well, let me tell you, just go to the book of Psalms and pretty much open any psalm and you'll find it out. Let me, let me read an excerpt from Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O God, you are so very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a curtain. See, that's praise. That's, that's a recitation of the great attributes and works of God. We need to practice that. We need to practice that. Number three. And this is going to have some relevance. Number one was our body. Number two was our praise. Number three is acts of love. I'll give you two scriptures. Philippians 4.18. Paul says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Listen, he's talking about money. The church at Philippi had taken up an offering and they had sent it to Paul to make sure that he could pay for whatever he need in his ministry. And he says that is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When we give of what we have, we are offering spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews thirteen sixteen says this. Now listen to this. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. You know, I was thinking this week that Do you want to offer a sacrifice to God, a spiritual sacrifice? Let me tell you, this coronavirus is an opportunity to do just that. We are going to have members of our family, of of the brother and sisterhood of Christ, who are going to be hurting during this time, who are going to be needing some help. You have an opportunity here to step up and offer a spiritual sacrifice to God by giving and sharing and helping those in the family of God. It's a perfect time for that. So it's not, we, you know, I, I like to come in here and we love t- talking about the Word of God and learning the Word of God, but I say it often. If you walk out the door and you don't practice it, it's a waste of time. You've got to step in and walk out the Word of God in your daily life. And what we're going through right now in this country is a perfect time, a perfect time. 
for you to walk acts of love, walk out the acts of love that are spiritual sacrifices with which Paul said in the writer of Hebrews says, God is well pleased. Our bodies, our praise, and our acts. When are those things acceptable to God? When they are done in reliance on the power of Christ, according to the will of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. You see, if you are doing this in His power, you're doing it according to His will, and you're doing it for His glory, then God will accept it. Not because it's perfect. Listen, nothing in this age is ever going to be perfect. But because it's done through Jesus Christ, God will accept it. And that is the only kind of sacrifice that God now accepts. Next week, uh, we're going to stay in these seven verses, uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Um, we're still, this was the third week of the believer's privileges. Next week, we, we're still not ready to move on. Uh, we'll do uh, part four. Let's pray. Father, as always, I want to thank you for your word. Um, what, a, what an incredible passage of scripture this is that we have the privilege of going through. But beyond that, Lord, I want to thank you that we are not only in union with you, but we have direct access to you. There's somewhere, I believe, in Ephesians where uh, Paul uh, says that one time we were far off and there was a dividing wall of hostility between us and you. But Jesus broke down that wall. He broke down that wall and now we have direct access as priests of the living God. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to be do that right. Do it well. Do it not only in your power and in your will, but do it for your glory. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this time in our, in, our, in our world, in our nation, in our community, and in our church, help us to see opportunities to offer up these spiritual sacrifice of acts of love. Help us not just to be lookers and readers of the word and studiers of the word, but help us, God, to actually be doers of the word in this time that now faces us. We love you, we thank you, and we give all the glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen.